I would like to tell you a story. Um, it's a true story. Uh, you may be aware that there's a, a movie that's coming out in July about the battle at Dunkirk. Uh, it's, it's not a battle that a lot of Americans are familiar with. It's not like Waterloo or Battle of the Bulge or Normandy. But if you've seen the trailer for this movie or if you happen to be a World War II history buff, you may know the story of Dunkirk. Uh, Dunkirk is a town. It's on the northern coast of France where a miracle happened. Uh, at least that's how Winston Churchill described it. Um, he called it a miracle of deliverance achieved by valor, by perseverance, by perfect discipline, by faultless service, by resource, by skill, by unconquerable fidelity. The story is there were about 365,000 soldiers in Dunkirk. Most of them were British. And the German tanks had completely surprised the soldiers by maneuvering through mountainous, rough terrain that the British thought was impassable for tanks. German planes were bombing. The German army was advancing in every direction. And the British commander knew that his men would be lucky to survive a single day once the tanks arrived. The situation dire, a British officer had the opportunity to send one communication back to Britain. And he sent three words, these three words, but if not. And those three words inspired the bravest, most unorthodox, most surprising rescue mission, perhaps in all of military history. The only way out of Dunkirk was across the English Channel, and the shallow sea would only allow large vessels to get so close to the shore, not close enough to rescue the men who were stranded there. And so Admiral Ramsey, who was put in charge, put out an all-call for help. And inspired by the courage and faithfulness of the troops in Dunkirk, the people of, Israel, of, of England responded. In one day, now this is World War II, it's before email, before texting, before Facebook, before any of that. In one day, 850 little boats commercial boats, fishing boats, pleasure boats, arrived in Dover, England to be a part of the rescue. Their crews were civilians, fishermen, businessmen, fathers and sons, ordinary people who were about to do something extraordinary. Those men sailed their boats from Dover, England to Dunkirk, France to rescue as many of the British soldiers as possible. They risked their own lives. Their chances were minuscule. They were untrained in war. They were ill-equipped to face German tanks. But they had unconquerable fidelity. Time was short. They expected to have a day. They hoped to rescue 45,000 soldiers, a little more than 10% of the men in Dunkirk. It was the best that they could hope for. The German general had his tanks in place surrounding the British soldiers and then something really extraordinary happened. They didn't attack. For nine days, the tanks just stayed in place. And for nine days, the seas remained perfectly calm. 
Someone told me in an earlier service that it's also true that for nine days there was a fog over the English Channel masking and hiding all of those boats ferrying back and forth. And so the fleet of fishing boats, commercial boats, and pleasure boats ferried men from Dunkirk to Dover. And Admiral Ramsey and his navy of courageous civilians saved the lives of 338,226 men. It is an unbelievable story. It's a miraculous story. If you have questions about it, I would encourage you, look it up. Read about it for yourself. But let me ask you a question. How did three simple words inspire such a response? Why did those words stir the soul and spirit of the English people? The answer is in the Bible. Because the people didn't just hear three words. The British officer's message connected them to a story. An inspiring story about unconquerable fidelity. A story that comes from the book of Daniel. And so I invite you to turn with me to Daniel chapter 3. We're going to begin in verse 14. And if you turn there, keep your finger there because we're going to camp out in the beginning of Daniel today. Daniel chapter 3 verse 14. Nebuchadnezzar said to them, Is it true, O Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods and you do not worship the golden statue that I have set up? Now, if you are ready, when you hear the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, dragon, harp, drum, and entire musical ensemble to fall down and worship the statue that I have made, well and good. But if you do not worship, you shall immediately be thrown into the furnace of blazing fire. And who is the God that will deliver you out of my hands? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to present a defense to you in this matter. If our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the furnace of blazing fire, and out of your hand, O king, let him deliver us. But if not... Be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods and we will not worship the golden statue that you have set up. Then Nebuchadnezzar was so filled with rage against Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego that his face was distorted. And he ordered the furnace heated up seven times more than was customary. And he ordered some of the strongest guards in his army to bind Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and to throw them into the furnace of blazing fire. And so the men were bound, still wearing their tunics, their trousers, their hats, and their other garments, and they were thrown into the blazing furnace. Because the king's command was urgent and the furnace was so overheated, the raging flames killed the men who lifted Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. But the three men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, fell down, bound into the furnace of flaming fire. Then King Nebuchadnezzar was astonished and rose up quickly. He said to his counselors, Was it not three men that we threw bound into the fire? They answered the king, true, O king. He replied, but I see four men unbound, walking in the middle of the fire, and they are not hurt. And the fourth has the appearance of a god. Nebuchadnezzar then approached the door of the furnace of blazing fire and said, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, servants of the Most High God, come out, come here. 
So Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came out from the fire, and the satraps, the prefects, the governors, and the king's counselors gathered together and saw that the fire had not had any power over the bodies of those men. The hair of their heads was not singed, their tunics were not harmed, and not even the smell of fire came from them. Nebuchadnezzar said, Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angel and delivered his servants who trusted in him. They disobeyed the king's command and yielded up their bodies rather than serve and worship any god except their own god. Therefore, I make a decree, any people, nation, or language that utters blasphemy against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego shall be torn limb from limb and their houses laid in ruins for there is no other God who is able to deliver in this way. Will you join with me in prayer? God, we give you thanks for your word. And we give you thanks that your word truly is alive. And so God, we pray that your word would come alive for us. That we would hear it not simply as a story, but as a story that speaks into our lives, just as it spoke into the lives of the British people and those British soldiers years and years ago. God, we pray that you would speak, that you would speak through me or in spite of me, and God, we pray that you would give us all ears to hear what your spirit might have for us to hear today. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. Well, the story that I just shared with you of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego is the story of three men who had the kind of faith that didn't depend on circumstances. When the commander at Dunkirk sent the message, but if not, he was aligning himself with these biblical heroes. He was making a statement that he and his men would stand faithful until the end. He was saying, we will accept the consequences of faithfulness to the call on our lives. We believe God is able to deliver us. We believe God will deliver us. But if not, we will still remain faithful. If you were here with us last weekend when Pastor Matt started this sermon series on Daniel, you may remember that the stories in the book of Daniel take place in Babylon. King Nebuchadnezzar, or we decided to call him King Neb for this series, had invaded Israel, destroyed Jerusalem, and carried off the bright, brightest and best to Babylon. And even as exiles in a foreign land, Daniel and his friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, distinguished themselves as especially capable. And they rose in prominence and influence especially after Daniel successfully interpreted the puzzling dream that King Neb had experienced. Now, King Neb is an interesting guy. He, Pastor Matt referred to him as a cagey dude. If you read the first three chapters of Daniel, you may notice that King Neb is also rather inconsistent. Daniel begins by telling us that King Neb came to Jerusalem besieged it and carried off items in the temple that were used to worship God so that he could use them to worship his God. Now, after Daniel accurately tells King Neb the content of his dream, King Neb realizes that only a powerful God could have given Daniel such insight. And so King Neb then decides to worship the God whose stuff he just stole. That's in chapter 2, verse 47. And yet, 
He's worshiping God using the stuff that he just stole. And then the very next thing he does in chapter 3, verse 1, is he decides, I'm going to make a golden image. (laughs) And he issues an edict that whenever the music plays, the people are to bow down, worship the image, and those who don't will be thrown into a furnace of blazing fire. Now, King Neb has seen the power of God, but he still thinks that he is the ultimate power, and he gets furious when his authority is challenged. The author gives us a picture of King Neb that's almost a caricature. Have you ever had your caricature done? Uh, A couple years ago, uh, my husband and I were at the National Zoo, and there was an artist who did a caricature of us, and I'm going to be out there and show you the caricature (laughs) of my husband and I from a couple years ago. It it looks like me, kind of. (laughs) But it also looks silly uh, because some of our features are exaggerated. And King Neb seems to be a caricature in this story, an exaggerated figure. He seems pompous and even silly. Look at Daniel chapter 3 verse 15. When you hear the sound of the horn, the pipe, the lyre, the trigon, the harp, the drum, the entire musical ensemble, then fall down and worship me. Don't you think? That naming all those instruments is uh, a little overkill. And that's not the first time that the list is given. You can also find it in Daniel chapter 3, verse 5. Those instruments are listed twice. And what about the list of officials? King Neb doesn't just refer to as my officials, people in my leadership, my cabinet, whatever. We get a list. Satraps, prefects, governors, royal advisors. And that list, too, is given twice. In verse 3 and in verse 27. He even goes overboard when he heats up the furnace. Verse 19. And he makes it seven times hotter than usual. The result is King Neb is just too much. Too much music. Too much officials. Too much heat. And definitely too much rage. He is a caricature of true power. And this caricature sets up a power struggle. Not between he and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They're just foreign exiles. They're pawns to be used in the true power struggle. Because the true power struggle is between King Neb and God. King Neb thinks that he has absolute authority, and he challenges the three men, what God will be able to rescue you from my hand? Now notice how Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego respond. In contrast to King Neb, they seem calm and completely in control. Look at verse 16. They don't even feel the need to defend themselves. All they say is, if our God, whom we serve, is able to deliver us from the furnace of blazing fire and out of your hand, O king, let him deliver us. But if not, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods, And we will not worship the golden statue that you have set up. It's a remarkable statement. Some have wondered, is it a statement of lukewarm faith? A nonchalant kind of response like, well, maybe God will save us. Maybe he won't. We don't know. Who can say? But it's not a nonchalant situation. Their lives are on the line. As Daniel Smith Christopher has observed, this 
is a statement of faith against the appearance of defeat. And the most infuriating aspect of radical faith is an adamant refusal to be impressed with the obvious. The obvious is that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are going to be thrown into the fire for their faithfulness. The obvious is that King Neb is going to exercise his power and get his way. But Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego refuse to be impressed with the obvious and continue to be impressed with God, despite their circumstances. And as we know, because we've just read the story, the obvious doesn't happen. The miraculous happens. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are saved. And as Isaiah promises, they walk through the fire and are not burned. King Neb throws them into the fire, but they are saved by a fourth man who looked like a god who appears in the fire. And King Neb recognizes that God has delivered Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego hold on to their faith and in the most dire circumstances said, but if not, and they are saved. The British forces at Dunkirk were surrounded by an army but remained faithful and said, but if not, and they were miraculously saved. But we know, right, that it doesn't always work that way. If you were here with us last month when we were going through the rest of the story, you may remember that Stephen, one of the early disciples of Christ, was stoned to death for his faith. The Bible and history are both full of stories of faithful men and women who trusted God to the end, and yet they were martyred for their faith. One of the more recent examples is Martin Luther King Jr., in November of 1967, Dr. King preached a sermon on this very passage of Scripture. And he challenged his congregation to have the kind of faith that could stand in the face of adversity and say, I trust God can deliver me. I trust God will deliver me. But if not, I will stay true to God. He not only preached those words, he lived those words. And so I thought you would appreciate hearing what he has to say about this amazing statement made by Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. I want to say to you this morning, my friends, that somewhere along the way, you should discover something that's so dear, so precious to you. Is so eternally worthful that you will never give it up. You ought to discover some principle. Yes, sir. You ought to have some great faith that grips you so much that you will never give it up. Never. Somehow you go on and say, I know that the God that I worship is able to deliver me. But if not, I'm going on anyhow. I'm going to stand up for it anyway. Is your faith so dear, so precious, so eternally worthwhile that you will never give it up under any circumstances? Could you say, I know that God is able to deliver me. 
I know that God will deliver me, but if not, I will still serve you, God. Many of us don't know the answer to that question, honestly, because our faith has never been significantly challenged. Very few of us have had our lives threatened because of the way that we live out our faith. But Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego's first trial wasn't the fiery furnace. Their first conflict involved eating vegetables. That wasn't too scary, and it was set up as an experiment. If you look back at chapter 1, you'll see that Daniel, along with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, wanted to honor God by following the Jewish food laws, and he didn't want to defile himself by eating the food the Babylonians were giving to them, and so they negotiated a trial period. They would be allowed to eat kosher for 10 days, and if they looked okay after that period, they could continue. Well, the, the experiment worked, and they were allowed to keep kosher. When was the last time that God gave you a small challenge, like eating vegetables? I was sharing a meal recently with uh, people that I didn't know. I just met them, people who aren't in the habit of asking a blessing before their meal. And it was kind of funny when they asked me what I did for a living, because I am a pastor who used to be a registered dietitian. And so let me tell you, people get nervous when they eat with me. (laughs) And so I try not to be weird at the dinner table. That's kind of on my mind. And I often have a little debate going on in my mind. Do I ask if I can pray before we eat or will that make them feel really weird and would it be better if I just silently prayed and and blessed the meal myself? Well, in this circumstance where we were at, um, the conversation was really lively and I didn't want to interrupt my host. And so I'm going to be really honest with you. I just said a silent little prayer and I picked up my fork. But, like, God just kind of wouldn't let that go. And all throughout the meal, I just kept thinking, you really should pray for these people. And so as we were finishing our dessert, we were drinking our coffee, and the conversation finally kind of came to a little break, a little lull. And and I just said to my host, I said, I am so grateful for for your hospitality, and I would just really love to have the opportunity to pray for you. Would that be okay? Well, they said yes, I prayed, and they seemed genuinely grateful. It wasn't scary, Uh, nobody's life was on the line, but I truly felt like it was just a little small thing. What God was saying to me, are you willing to live different? To live my faith in front of these people and not just to say the words of your faith, but to actually live it out at their table. To pray with them just like I would pray with any one of you. One of the things that I admire most about Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego is that they live their faith more than they talk it. They are so confident of the power of God that they don't even feel the need to defend themselves. Could you say that? Do you have a deep, unconquerable fidelity like they do? Or do you find that you just always need to defend yourself? When you're scrolling Facebook and you come across a post from someone who's on the opposite political spectrum than you are, do you let it go and say, well, they think different than I do? Or do you hit the caps lock so that you can appropriately yell at them? And are you prone to rants? When I'm reading Facebook and I say, please excuse my rants, I always feel like my blood pressure goes up because I don't want to hear somebody's rant. And As you're going through, do you always have to have the last word? Or can you trust 
that God is in power and that God is in control and really my two cents don't make a whole lot of difference. Daniel reminds us that we don't always need to defend ourselves because God is in control. King Neb, who seems to be in control, who seems to be in power, is really out of control. He is so out of control that he's comedic, more like a caricature than an absolute ruler. And God, who is silent throughout the story, is the powerful one. Look at Daniel chapter 1, verse 2, and you'll see that it was God who delivered the Jews into King Neb's hand in the first place. And it is that same God who delivers Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego from the fiery furnace. Even King Neb had to acknowledge that no other God can save in this way. King Neb isn't amazed with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego's courage, but with God's power. And the officials who started out as witnesses to King Neb's power, standing in front of King Neb's statue in chapter 3, verse 3, end up as witnesses to God's power standing in front of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego because three faithful men in the face of great adversity had the unconquerable fidelity to say, but if not. Faith like that is a witness. People notice it. Some of you have that kind of faith. You may not be thrown into a furnace, but the heat has been turned up in your life. And maybe you're dealing with the fire of health problems. A couple of weeks ago, I spoke with one of you who is experiencing so many health problems, health problems for which there are no easy answers. And you showed me a little slip of paper that you had placed in your wallet with words from one of Pastor Matt's recent sermons. And that paper read, your circumstances are not your sentence. You know that God can heal. You trust that God will heal. But if not, you will still be faithful because your faith is so dear, so precious, so eternally worthwhile that you will never give it up. That note is a reminder that your circumstances aren't a punishment because God is in control. People are watching what you do when the heat gets turned up in your life. If you're a parent, your children are watching. And if you have non-Christian friends, and I really hope you do, they're watching. God may not miraculously rescue you from your fiery furnace, but I don't think the hope in this passage is found in the rescue. I think that we can take courage because you can know with unconquerable fidelity that God is able to deliver you. And you can take courage because you can trust with unwavering faith that God will deliver you. But even if God doesn't, you can go through the fiery trial, because the same God who pulled Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego out of that fiery furnace is with you. And the same God who is with Martin Luther King Jr. is with you in a powerful way. You too can say, if our God, whom we serve, is able to deliver us from whatever trial we face, let him deliver us. But if not, be it known that we will not turn away. And we will not serve and we will not worship any other gods. Let the people say, Amen. <laughs>